Content warning. This episode of the Unlock Moment podcast discusses the topic of suicide and the impact of suicide in some depth, including the experience of a woman who lost her husband to suicide and how she found a path to acceptance and peace. This is a challenging topic, but I believe it is an important story to tell, and we have taken great care to tell it with honesty and sensitivity. If you may be triggered by this topic, then please do not listen to this episode. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. If you've been listening for a while, then you'll remember psychiatrist and suicide expert Dr. Mark Goulston's powerful episode here on the Unlock Moment called Catching People When They Fall. I heard today's guest in conversation with Dr. Mark on his own podcast and was compelled to invite her to come and tell you all her story. I'm so grateful that she accepted the invitation. Alexandra Wyman is an advocate and public speaker for resources in the aftermath of suicide. After she lost her husband to suicide in August of 2020, Alexandra found a need to change the rhetoric around suicide. She's an Amazon best-selling author of The Suicide Club, What to Do When Someone You Love Chooses Death, a guide to navigate the grief process after loss by suicide. She's been a guest on a variety of podcasts, such as Resilience Unraveled, the Healing Trauma podcast, and My Wake Up Call. Her story has also been featured in Authority Magazine and Authentic Insider. Alexandra's purpose has shifted to not only guide others through their grief journey, but also to support individuals in taking the first steps to decondition from childhood messages and projections we all receive. She is the co-host of the Russian Sisters podcast, practices pediatric occupational therapy, and lives with her son in Colorado. Alexandra Wyman, it is indeed my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. I'm just very honored and excited for this conversation. Thank you for joining. I'm really grateful you're here. So before we come into the core theme of the conversation, tell me a little about who you are and your life today, and then we'll come to talk about your experience and the Unlock Moments that brought you to this place. Yes, absolutely. So I... Uh, I am of Russian descent. You can hear that in the Russian Sisters podcast. Uh, so I grew up, my father is a Russian Orthodox priest. So I grew up kind of moving around the U.S. Uh, I'm first generation on my father's side, second generation on my mother's side. So come from an immigrant family and moving around quite a bit. We ended up landing in Colorado and I was able to finish high school here, left for college for a little bit. And honestly, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I spent some time traveling and trying all sorts of different jobs and careers and ended up back in Colorado near my family and decided I wanted to become an occupational therapist. And through that, really um, found that I 
really enjoyed working with children and wanted to continue doing that as well. And then in 2017, I was a little late to the game on the, what I call the ideal life that we tend to go for of that, um, finding a husband, going, you know, going to school, finding a partner, I should say, not necessarily a husband, but finding a partner, buying that house, having your kids, your white picket fence, 2.5 dogs. And so in my mid thirties, I ended up meeting my husband, Sean, and we had just a great connection immediately. We um, met, we just had that connection uh, and fell in love very, very fast and decided that we wanted to grow life together. So we got married within eight months of meeting each other. We bought our first house. And then a couple months after we got married, we found out um, that I was pregnant. And so it looked like, I mean, we were doing quite well as far as those checkboxes that we have. And I'll say that I, I knew that my husband had dealt with some childhood trauma and that he was working through some of that, but nothing to the extent that I ever thought it would end up with just short of our third wedding anniversary. Um, that he, excuse me, second wedding anniversary. I was getting I'm really excited about that. Um, just short of our second wedding anniversary, he ended up dying by suicide. And that definitely changed the trajectory of my life in a myriad of ways. And so that brings me to where I am here talking to you, because the whole process after he passed, one, it was very unexpected, did not see it coming, no signs. We like to talk about looking for those signs and trying to bring hope and help to individuals when they're contemplating ending their life. Um, none of that was in, in my particular situation. And then I was just left with a life to rebuild. And our son was just over one year old. So that led me to really figure out what this process is. I was gifted some beautiful journals. I was uh, shown some really good books on prayer. But there's a lot of business and a lot of grief. Grief is complex, and that complicated my situation. And I felt that writing, which has always been very cathartic for me, might be a way that I could help someone else through a process if I could write down what my journey had been. And I really appreciate you taking the time and, and, and coming here and, and telling your story because it, this is, it is a common experience. I mean, in the UK, suicide is the most common cause of death for men under the age of 45. Um, and I remember as training at medical school uh, and training to be a doctor that I was always surprised at how little people did talk about it, were able to talk about it. And so I'm personally passionate about the opportunity from time to time to help bring that story to life. And I'm really grateful for you coming and, and telling your story. And you're comfortable to talk a little bit more about your experience coming, coming through that experience and what happened next? Oh, yes, absolutely. So you, you said that, you know, you didn't see it coming. There weren't signs. And in your experience of, I know you've worked a lot with other people who've gone through a similar experience. Is that quite common for people that they don't see it coming? Yes. And I think that's a little bit of a misconception. And again, I, I think the work that's done for prevention of suicide is phenomenal. Um, and we want to have an idea of a way to almost predict who will die this way, who won't. And in doing that, creating a system that says, look for these things. And I can't say that there's no one who ever didn't see a sign. I can't because I, I don't know everyone who's been impacted by this death. I can say, though, I mean, I immediately joined a suicide-specific support group 
and for any individuals within that support group are out of it, uh, no one saw it coming. And even if people struggle, like I said, my husband struggled for a while dealing with the stress, the continued stress and, and the trauma related to his childhood experiences. However, there wasn't any indication at any point in time. You know, I say I, I've had individuals come to me and say, well, you must be an expert in mental health issues. You must know everything about depression. And I kind of look a little bewildered because I I didn't. He wasn't he wasn't clinically depressed. There wasn't anything to say on this on August 22nd of 2020. My husband's going to end his life. And so um, similarly for other situations, people may understand that their person is struggling, but never never really thought that this is how it was going, going to end. And so at that time, and in that circumstance you describe, how, how did you react? Well, it was a lot of shock. Um, I will say that. I knew, I will say I knew about six hours before he passed what was happening. He did send me a text message. Uh, he and I had had an argument the morning before he died. And it ended with us deciding he left the house and then I left the house with our son to go for a walk. And shortly thereafter, I received a text message from him and I just knew immediately. I said, I think this is a goodbye text. And I happened to be around other family members and they, you know, tried to encourage me not to go down that path, not without really knowing. And uh, after that, it just transpired. I started getting in touch with any friends or family that I knew. He had been with some friends the, the night before. So I'd reached out to them. And then it just started this whole process of trying to find him. And essentially, I had two different counties that were looking for him friends, it took a little bit for the friends, because they initially their response was just let him have some space. And uh, eventually, I was able to figure out where he was in the sheriff's office, the local sheriff's office, uh, they were out looking for him, it just ended up being a little bit too late. And so it was about six hours of just desperation, trying to find him, figure out. We didn't do the the cell phone ping thing that you can do to find where people are. We we never thought that that would be something we would need. So um, not that I'm necessarily a huge advocate for that, but it does come in handy if there's <laughs> something, a situation where someone's not responding and you can find where they are. So I was trying to do that. And uh, when I uh, will say that um, at about 2.15 in the afternoon, I just I just fell to the ground. I, I crumbled. I had this guttural scream released from me, collapsed on the floor. My son was not was not with me at that time. I did have some family with me, but my son was being taken care of in another household. Uh, and I said, I, he's gone. I just know he's gone. And then it was about four hours after that that I was actually officially notified by the sheriff's office that yes, he had died at 2.14 p.m. And how important was it for you to be able to find other people who'd gone through a similar experience to you? Immediately. I think within a day, I had someone reach out and say, you need to talk to my friend. She just went through this five years ago. Uh, the One of the sheriff's officers who did inform me, she even said, my husband died seven months ago by suicide. You're going to get through this. Um, there's just a different community and sense of knowing when you're around people who have gone through that same type of grief. And I say that for any type of grief or loss or death, find people who've been through the same thing, because no matter where they are in their grief journey, if they're behind you, if they're in front of you, 
you're going to learn something and you can be a support to another person and they can be a support to you. But there's also a, an understanding, an unspoken understanding where you don't have to explain your situation. You don't have to explain that you didn't see it coming. You don't have to explain that you feel guilty that somehow you caused this. People just know. And instead of having to work through all of that, you can actually just start taking steps um, toward moving forward and being able to grieve because you don't have to work through all those elements that is that are just shared among people who who lose a loved one this way. And it's something really important. A, f- a friend of mine years and years and years ago um, had a very close family member die by suicide and and I was present when they found out. Um, and I remember thinking then, and I've always thought since, it's different if you have the actual experience in what you can offer in terms of the support. So the people around you who haven't had that experience and, of course, deeply supportive. But to be able, I can, you know, I, I always felt um, insufficient because I couldn't quite connect with what it must be like to be in that situation. Be able to talk to people who do understand from their own lived, personal lived experience to be in that situation must be quite different. It is different. I will say I, I'm still very awkward when it comes to death. I will say that. So when I find out that someone else has lost a loved one in any manner, uh, the, the phrase, and I work through this constantly with my therapist, I'm sorry for your loss, right? That's very common. And I'm not sure, is that as common in the UK as it is? That's usually what Americans will say. I'm sorry for your loss. And okay. And so there's nothing wrong with that. I just, for me, I feel like it's not just my loss. That's me create some separation between what I'm going through and another person where in my mind, anything can happen to anyone at any point in time. Um, although my, I will say my therapist is trying to work with me on not saying that's a bummer. That's not necessarily the most appropriate, but that's kind of what I, that's where I want to go. It's awful. It's a bummer. This is horrible. You're, you're, you've lost someone. Um, and so I'm going to say, I'm not a therapist, but I'd rather like that you said that I have to say, (laughs) I like, yeah. So yeah, that's, that tends where I want to go to of, yeah. Um, but I will say no matter, no matter what I can, I can see how there is an element of, I understand what you're about to go through. However, I also think just being available to someone, even if you can't necessarily completely understand, but just being there, I will say grief in general, people you think are going to have your back most likely won't. And the people who are the least likely are going to you're, your family, your support system shifts and changes and just the individuals who can just be there or say things like that's really a bummer. I don't, I can't say I know what you're going through. That just sounds awful. And I'm here for you. Whenever you're ready, I'm here for you. That's really important. I think that creates a better sense of community because often with grief or something so tragic, our response is how do we fix it? How do we come in here and fix it? What can we do? We feel helpless. I need to do something. I had several people. We need to do something. What can we do for you? And finally, I just said, just bring meals. Because what I needed, no one could do. No one could bring my husband back. No one can have him walk through that front door. No one could replace me as the single parent now for my child. And so all of these elements, I'm like, but you can't do anything. And one, I don't need to be fixed. My son doesn't need to be fixed either. Uh, but the individuals who Justin and I kept saying, just keep reaching out to me. And 
and they did. And those were the people I feel impacted and, and really are still a part of my support system to this day. And something that is quite particular to the situation of being a survivor of suicide is the thing that you've written very powerfully on, which is this idea of it's not your fault and, and finding a way to find peace with the idea of it's not your fault. Tell me more about how you see that and how you, how you came to think about that. That's a big one. I still have moments, I'll say, where I run through scenarios every once in a while, or if I've had a grief burst, or if I'm closer to the anniversary of Sean's death, I'll start kind of replaying scenarios. So I don't know that that one ever goes completely away. But I think when I started shifting Sean's death away from being about me to being about him, then I could see and take a little bit of the responsibility off of me. So I found if I made the situation about me, then it, in my opinion, it gets us to that point of anger, blame and judgment. How could you leave me? How could you leave our son? How could you do this to me? And when I could shift it away and say, here was a person who must have been in so much emotional pain. It wasn't outward. Couldn't see it. You couldn't touch it. Um, he did. I know he was in some pain. Absolutely. But not to the extent that he was. Uh, and when you can get to a point of understanding that for someone to be in that much emotional pain, to see that the only choice left for them is to end their life in order to get rid of that pain. To me, that's a pretty major decision. It's not one that, in my opinion, is taken lightly. And in in that respect, when I was able to shift to that sort of mindset and really look at it and go, you're not much pain that this is this is what where you're going. All I felt was love and compassion. And in that respect, I could say, "Okay, I didn't do this. It's not my fault. Were there elements of our marriage that contributed to the stress? Absolutely. Were there elements of his job and our families? Absolutely. But me directly being responsible, that's when I could feel that shift change and go, I'm I'm not at fault for this. I know what a good marriage we had. I know that we loved each other. And being able to quiet some of the outside voices that were blaming me and really getting grounded in what I knew to be true is what essentially helped me start to say, okay, this isn't my fault. So from that time on, you started on this long, never-ending journey, but this long journey of starting to cope, starting to, to shape you know, your, your life after that. How did that start? How, where, where did you go first? How did you start to rebuild? That is such a good question. Um, really just with small, small steps and also starting to collect resources and tools. So I initially, I had about eight months of additional trauma and drama that happened after Sean died. And it wasn't until I started setting boundaries for myself and for others, that I could actually really start grieving. And I had already been working with a therapist at that point in time. I had already been journaling. And then I started looking to others for what tools were they using. And that's essentially where I started. Once I could understand that I needed to work through my emotions, not work around them, uh, they're awful. It's awful to go through, but it is absolutely a rewarding on the other side. 
So I needed to tap into whatever tools I could. So I just started, I was reading books. I was watching shows about death. I, um, like I mentioned, journaling, I started meditating. Um, so many people kept telling me to exercise. And initially I did not have kind words for those people, but exercise and movement is important. Um, and so, and I also found that I needed to understand and honor myself for what my capacity was. There were days where I thought I'm not getting out of bed and I didn't get out of bed. I also knew that I had to have something to anchor to here in this life because individuals who lose a loved one by suicide um, are at a higher risk of dying that way. And I knew that and I knew it wouldn't be fair to my son to lose another parent. So he kind of became my anchor of his life can be impacted by this scenario, but it I was not going to let it dictate his life. And so I ended up just having, so, you know, multiple things there. You have finding an anchor, finding tools that are going to work, and then honoring and being kind to yourself. So many times, even now, I mean, we're almost at three years. And even now my therapist still asks me what I'm doing for self-care. And half the time, I don't know what you're asking me right now. But it is important to find ways to tap into that. So I've definitely screamed in my car. I have cried and cried and cried and thought I was done crying. I have gone to the gym and hit the bag. So it's really about just moving forward in any baby step that you can do, even if it starts with just taking a hot shower or eating a meal. And over time, did you start to feel like you were making more sense of what had happened or did you just feel as though you were putting things back together again in a new, in a new way? For in my experience, they kind of came together at the same, not at the same time, but simultaneously. So there's that, this part of life that I call as even the kind of the now what phase of my grief process where I had to go back to the day-to-day routines. People are back at work. They're like, oh yeah, you went through this tragic thing, but we're not in your home. We're not with you as you wake up and your husband's not there. We're not there when you have to figure out, you know, your son's schedule. And so you have these day-to-day things you have to do, work, take care of your home, that kind of thing. But at the same time, there is this journey of trying to unravel while you're picking up the pieces of your life. You're trying to unravel emotionally. What did you just go through? And so for me in that, there was the more that I could start to really work on my healing, which I will say for me to, I I ended up finding that I kept running into blocks in my healing process and those blocks, it was myself. Um, But that would be, I would run into what I call my people pleaser. And I would find that I was buying in again to what other people were saying or their perspectives on suicide or how i met a couple and their son had died um, by suicide and they immediately started blaming the wife. And I was very triggered by that. So I realized that my people pleaser was coming out and I needed to go back and actually heal from my childhood. Where did that people pleaser come from in order for me to move forward with my current grief process? And similarly, I had other themes that would coming up where I realized some of my core limiting beliefs were blocking my process which was also blocking my ability to try and wrap my head around it. There are always going to be questions about what was going on for Sean that I'm not going to get those answers to. But part of that healing process is when I could separate myself, as I mentioned earlier, but then also start healing some of those things 
from being from when I was a child allowed me to really be able to face my grief in front of me. And we've talked about the idea of an unlocked moment of remarkable clarity. Those moments when you you think back and and it's not about it's not necessarily about the the thing that happened in that time. The unlocked moment is about the moment of figuring something out, about finding clarity from which you might think differently, decide differently, act differently. And I know when we were talking about before, you talked about figuring out what really matters to you in life. That, that for you was an unlocked moment in, in this journey. So bring us into that time. What was happening for you? And, 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 and tell us that story. Yes. And I love, I love this idea of the unlocked moment. I feel I've had so many. So to, to pick one is, is uh, a little hard, but one of the biggest ones I would say, um, I was really struggling because of how things had transpired after Sean's death with a lot of the blame and anger and judgment. So just for some background, there are some individuals uh, within family and friends who wanted to challenge my marriage. They wanted to legally bring me to court over my house. There were discussions apparently about custody of my son. There were events that were being planned without me. And I, I was just falling apart with all of this. There was a lot of anger and sadness. Here I was thinking we would all come together in community and unity and instead it was a very broken environment for me. Additionally, around that time, I knew of the childhood experiences that Sean had had that contributed, I won't say directly led to, but contributed to a lot of the stress. He felt that he was broken, fully broken. So no, no, none of these tools that I've talked about, you know, therapy or exercise or journaling or meditate, he didn't think any of these would work for him. So he never felt like he could really access anything because he really internalized that he was broken. And I had a lot of anger on his behalf for that and anger toward certain people on his behalf. And so I was trying to understand and work through that. And again, as I've mentioned, there are blocks and this ended up being a block for me. I never really had anger towards Sean in this whole process, but I definitely had anger towards other individuals who I feel could have been a big support for him and just weren't. And, and because of their own reasons, which is fine, it was just the anger that I was carrying on his behalf. And so I also tend to say I get some really good ideas when I'm in the shower. And sometimes those ideas stick with me and some I forget by the time I get out of the shower. Uh, but this one stuck with me really clearly. And I think because I was in the shower and actually remembered is why it sticks with me so well. Um, but I, I remember I was standing there going, why am I holding on to this anger when where Sean is right now? He doesn't hold on to it. If he and and this goes a little bit into more of the spiritual side, but for me, I found if I'm if I believe that Sean is in heaven or in an enlightened space, then why am I holding on to such negativity if if it doesn't it doesn't mean anything to him anymore, and it's not going to do me any good. It's not doing my son any good for me to keep this anger towards these individuals, and that was a major moment that led into the idea of getting a message that 
really, instead of getting stuck into the trivial things of day-to-day life and who cut me off and what line do I have to stand in and don't like checking the mail and I have this house I have to take care of and I'm fighting a cottonwood in my backyard. But really the big things are, you know, love, compassion, and forgiveness. And how can you live those three things consistently and for everybody? And my initial reaction in that was like, no, what? No, there's, what is this? No, I've, I don't understand. And the more that I just sat with that, the more I was able to let go of some of that anger, I'll say I'm not necessarily at a point where I've forgiven all of the individuals who are involved in that initial situation after Sean died, but I definitely started to feel less of the angst around it and started to relax a little bit more and feel more grounded in the idea of, okay, what can I change in my life? that where I can start focusing more on having more love, compassion, and forgiveness for people. Forgiveness is definitely the hardest one for me. <laughs> but but that love and compassion, not only for people that it's easy, right? So maybe it's easy to say, I love everyone in the world, or I love my family, or I love the people I work with. But what about those people where you think of them and go, oh, that, that's like the worst person I've ever heard of. How can you find love for that individual? How can you find compassion for someone else's story and their decisions, even when they're completely different than you would make right now? And so that's that was kind of my unlock moment where I really felt a major shift, not only my grief process, but just in life. And then I started, as you've mentioned, it's not necessarily what happens after, but then I started getting a lot of ideas and a lot of messages about where where my purpose was going in this life. I mean, it is a brilliant and beautiful articulation of a real unlock moment. And one of the things that stands out for me here and is common to many of the unlock moments that people have described in other conversations is when you describe it, it's so rich and nuanced. You know, there's a lot to say about it. And yet the moment you're in the shower, so the moment probably lasted much shorter than the description of it, but that's Unlock moments when they're real unlock moments. I call it the unlock moment as opposed to just another unlock moment. Um, it arrives fully formed often. And you don't necessarily know what to do with it yet. And I really liked how you said it's not easy to forgive. And that said to me that it's real, that it's authentic, that if you were sitting there going, oh, I discovered that I should forgive everyone. Well, that's not real because it's not as easy as that in the same way as you said earlier and again i I really liked it you said it's a bummer it's how you really feel and that's a very authentic thing to say and the right person would hear that and appreciate it for its honesty um when when i talk to people and and they talk about their unlock moments and you go that's the one that's the one that that before there was cloud and now there's clarity and forever there will be clarity. So it might be that you figure out over time what you do with that thing you thought, but there won't be a time in the future where you go, no, it's not compassion. That's not important anymore. You know, it's, it's a new foundation. Um, and I think that, that it brings to life really nicely and, and really powerfully the way you describe that, how it, how it can be a bit of a pivot point in your own journey. For you, what, what, what started to change as a result of that moment of clarity? The, I'd say initially what I started setting more and more boundaries. 
and really getting clear on what events, what friends, what was I doing even with my work that felt aligned with love, compassion, and forgiveness. Not necessarily that I'm working in an industry, right? I said I'm a pediatric occupational therapy, uh, but how, what was I doing that could create enough space that I could continue working on this journey? And so there were some some people in my life that I had known for years, and but I found that our friendship wasn't really encouraging me for this particular journey. And it doesn't mean our friendship ended. It's just that I had my own boundary to say, our friendship is shifting because it serves me differently. And so that was initially really how I started the process. And then I found that when I say my my purpose shifted, I had been raised with an idea of your purpose and what you do in life is really about what you do, not who you are. And I started anchoring in, no, I feel my purpose is who I am and how I was created to be. And now what the what will follow. And so by making those boundaries, setting those boundaries, making these shifts, started to really feel a little bit more solid in who I am and who that purpose is. And then, as I mentioned, a lot of the what started to naturally come to me and just being able to say that doesn't that doesn't light me up. That doesn't feel aligned. Just that little switch had massive impact on my life. In your book, you talk about the three phases of grief and you've talked about the first two shock and awe and now what? And then you name the third one, finding the collateral beauty. Tell me more about finding the collateral beauty. Yes, I was inspired by the movie. I like to make sure I say that so I know that I, I'm not taking this as my original thought. Um, because when in the grief process, and especially when you get caught up in that day-to-day survival, right? we're, not, we're not thriving at that point. You're surviving. It's how am I getting to work, getting my kid to where he needs to go, making sure there's food on the table, go to bed, wash, rinse, repeat. Uh, and you can have tunnel vision in your grief, too. Sad days are really sad. Happy days, finding that little bit of a happy day or saying I had three really horrible days, but I'm having a good day. You get tunnel vision in keeping track of all that. And again, with that survival, and I started to realize there were moments when I started to find that there was a little bit of joy. And I did feel conflicted at first and had to work through some guilt of is this dishonoring Sean? Is this dishonoring what our life is going to be? You know, if I have this grief process for the rest of my life, do I have to be sad the whole time? Or is there a way that I can still find joy or happiness? And and the answer is yes, there's definitely still ways to find joy and happiness. And that is okay. It is not dishonoring your loved one by finding those moments or having something to look forward to or planning. And I started to see how when I could pull back from my tunnel vision and look around for whatever reason in my neighborhood, it will be sunny and look like the sky is clear and it will rain. And for what this has happened with snow, it's happened with hail, it's happened with rain recently. And it kind of cracks me up, but it was moments like that just for 30 seconds where I went, that's really cool. And also I find it beautiful. And finding little moments like that where they started to add up a little bit more frequently, did I realize when I could pull back from my day to day and that survival, I could see that there was an opportunity and a possibility of that thriving 
and finding all the beauty that actually is left in this life and that it I'm deserving of that happiness and I'm deserving of that beauty. I really love that. And at what point did you go, I think this is a book? <laughs> you know, I'll say I started writing the book before I knew it was going to be a book. Uh, and so I think when I got to the, I mean, there are so many different times I'm, that I got certain messages or had some clarity. And I'll be honest, sometimes I go back and read a chapter and go, did I write that? Cause that's actually, that's actually pretty decent advice. Like maybe I need to take my own advice kind of thing. Um, so I think about probably about halfway through, did I go, I think I'm onto something. And when I started getting more of those messages, like the love, compassion and forgiveness, and it doesn't happen linear. It did not happen chronologically and linear and how it was written. But I would get these ideas and go, I think, I think I could really help someone with this. And simultaneously, as I was writing, I started getting phone calls from people saying, hey, this person just lost their husband to suicide. Would you be a contact? This person just lost their son to suicide. Would you be a contact? And the more that I found that I could be a resource, I felt more called to continue writing to see if uh, this might help another person through their process. And what do you hope that your work does for people who, who read your book? What do you hope people take away from it? Okay, so two things. I love this question. Well, the first thing I would say is I really want to empower people to have some of those harder conversations and do them when you're feeling good, which I know kind of sounds the opposite. We tend to want to have some of these more involved questions or excuse me, conversations when we're not feeling great or if we need to work through something. But I really encourage people have some of those harder questions when you're feeling better and to empower people. There's no shame, blame or judgment in any of this. We all have negative experiences. We all have things that have impacted us. And when we can feel that we can share in a safe way, then it creates more unity. So I'd say that's one of the first goals. The other, the other goal I would say that I want to encourage people is, again, because we all have these negative experiences that have impacted us, is to start healing. Take whatever step it is to really start evaluating what are those messages, what are those things that you have carried for your whole life, whether it's a grudge or a hurt, and take those first steps to actually start healing those. Because while it's awful to go through it, it's amazing on the other side. And it will impact and set the tone and encourage other people to do the same. There's something you said in an interview you've done in the past that I really liked, which was life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you. Unpack that for us. That one took me a long time to actually, someone said that early on to me in my process. And again, did not have the kindest words for that. Um, I think when we understand, it's easy to say that life is happening to us because that means that we don't have to take accountability for where we are and for the things happening in our lives. Now, let me be clear that John's death, while that was his decision, it was something that happened in my life. I'm not responsible for his death, but I am impacted by it. Just the same when we have other negative experiences if someone does something that's inappropriate or wrong towards us, the accountability is on them on what they did. Our accountability is how we respond and what we do with the experience and how we work through it. And so in shifting that life was happening for me, I started to understand that there it's 
it's like building blocks of lessons and ways to to continue to grow to be able to step into that purpose of who I am in order to heal and really elevate myself and my own personal growth so that I can pay it forward for other people. And again, it's just another mind shift, but just that little bit can open up so many opportunities. It can take away that victim mentality. It can take away the idea of not being where we want to be in our lives. I think I don't, I haven't met any person who has said that they're always where they thought they would be in their lives. It just doesn't happen that way. And life isn't linear, completely unpredictable. You just have no idea what's going to happen. And at the same time, how we respond and trusting ourselves on how we're going to handle situations is what can be predictable. And that's where that idea of, of life happens for us, not to us. I really like that. And when you were talking, I was thinking about one of my favorite topics, which is time and taking more of it. And that idea that, you know, there's a really powerful lesson, a really powerful message in that. But soon after your loss wasn't the right time, wasn't the time that you could take that on board and, and could understand what to do with that piece of information. I say to people sometimes, my thing is you can't think to a deadline. The idea that, well, by the end of this month, you should have it all figured out. Sometimes it takes a lot more time, a lot, lot more time. And and one of the most freeing things you can say to somebody is, it may just take more time and just sit with it and live with it. And when it's the right time for you to figure that bit out, you'll figure it out. Um, and, and I think I hear that in, in the way you describe that. It's an ongoing journey. And in, and in your journey ahead, so, so when you think about the year ahead, for example, you know, what does that continued journey of growth and, and progression look like for you, do you think? Oh, I love this. Um, it, you know, for me, really, it's continuing to tap into the tools and resources. And I say those tools and resources change daily, but continue to up level and, and grow. And I believe that conflicts and I love your idea of time because I, I really do feel that the I call them tests or conflicts that come up or ways that were triggered will come up at the right time when it's time to heal. <laughs> and so I really want to just continue my own process uh, to see how far I can take my own personal growth journey. And also for me, I'm learning a lot of what I want, how I want to raise my son and teach him how to be able to step into who he is. And in by me being able to continue doing that for myself, then I can show him. And I hope that I, as I meet new people or be able to have more experiences, that I, I will continue to see new opportunities that come up. And I still have quite a few fears. Like I said, I've got some forgiveness I've got to work on. And it's a daily process. I will say, when you first started talking about that concept of time, I I joke that uh, my astrological sign is in Aries. So when all this happened, I was like, awesome, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to be done with this grief thing and I'm going to move on. And that's just not how it, not how it happens at all. Uh, but I do believe the right opportunities for that growth occur when they're meant to and when we're most open to it. And if somebody back at that time had said to you, my experience is it just takes a long time. Do you think you would have listened and absorbed that or would you still have been in the Aries mindset of I'm going to get it done I'm going to get it done oh 
I mean, I'll, I'll say probably twofold. I probably would have had some words and then taken some time after. <laughs> I probably said, no way. I got to get through this. Where's the business? Let me let me do this. What is this grief thing? And then eventually I, I probably would have noticed the more. Because when you do that, you know, when I, I can say in my experience, the more that I was saying, I just have to push through the more barriers and the more strife and more frustration I was feeling because I wasn't allowing that element of time. I wasn't allowing my body, my mind, my soul to really work through things. I was just trying to go around it. So I think now I'm able to handle it a little differently, but that time component is very important. More I was trying to push through my grief and the feelings I was having, the more I felt that I was going to become more frustrated and more barriers because I wasn't allowing my mind, body, and soul to actually work through the process. I was just trying to bulldoze through it. And that's where the time component absolutely comes in. I don't, I don't think it's just time by itself, but I do think it is such an important process. And I've known, and it's different for every person. So there's no way, there's no algorithm. There's no way of really knowing how that's going to transpire or, or come to fruition. It's really powerful. And I, I really appreciate particularly the part about saying how different it is for different people. People experience grief in an extraordinarily broad and different range of ways. And sometimes there's something in the knowing that you don't have to be the same as everyone else, even though you don't necessarily know what it is for you yet. That, I think that's important. How can people find out more about you and the work that you do? Oh, absolutely. So I do have a website. It's forward to joy, all spelled out, forward to joy.com. I am on Instagram at forward to joy, or you can reach me via email at alexandra at forward to joy.com. Thank you. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For advocate, speaker, and author Alexandra Wyman, it was figuring out the anchor of love, compassion, and forgiveness in making something good come from her healing journey and finding the path to acceptance and peace. If you'd like to know more about this important topic, do go to Amazon or your favorite bookshop and buy a copy of Alexandra's book, The Suicide Club, What to Do When Someone You Love Chooses Death. Alexandra, it has been such a privilege. On behalf of all my listeners, thank you so much for your openness, your bravery, and your vulnerability to come on and share your story with such grace. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Unlock Moment. Thank you so much for having me. If you have been affected by this episode of the Unlock Moment, then please reach out to a medical professional or to a suicide support group in your location. In the UK, you can talk to the Samaritans on 116123 or text SHOUT to 85258. In the US, you can call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing the number 988. Thank you. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.